Hi, welcome. Thank you for tuning to Life Plus Up with your host Kevin Yang. For all the listeners, Life Plus Up is a podcast dedicated in making your life better by achieving success in three core components of life: personal, financial, and career. In each episode, we'll be bringing some of the most positive and inspiring news, followed by introducing programs to help out with personal finance. We'll coach you some professional skills to help you advance in your career, and be your resources for a better lifestyle and health. You can find the newest episode every Wednesday by follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Google, or much more. At the end of each episode, I will answer some of the questions from our listeners. So if you have a question, please email me or DM me on Instagram, or just by clicking on the voice link listed in the description. Remember, if you find this podcast informative and helpful, please share with someone that you think this can help. So now, let's have a great show. Have you thought about being the very best in your profession? How about dedication to achieve your dream, regardless of the challenges and the norms? Do you believe that your passion and effort can really change your destiny and shape your own future? Do you believe you have what it takes to be known as the world's best? Welcome to episode thirty-seven: Determination to be the best of the world. Through hospitality, an exclusive interview with Mark Almed, the winner of World's Best Sommelier 2019. First, I want to thank all the listeners and friends of our podcast, as we have officially crossed the 15,000 downloads milestone over the past weekend. This has been an amazing journey, and I wouldn't be able to do it without all your support and encouragement. When I first started this podcast as a life coach. I have one goal and one goal only, of helping others to achieve success in personal, financial, and career. Throughout the past eight months, the world sure has changed, and many people's lives have been forever impacted. It's more important than ever for us to remain positive and engaging to prepare for all the challenges ahead. I promise that I will forever cherish all your support and continue to improve the content of the podcast for all of us to get a plus up in life that we all deserve. At this time, the pandemic continues to ravage our nation, and millions of families out there are still in dire needs. These families are in need of food, groceries, or even simple household essentials. With our help, we can provide the relief that they really need right now. So. If you're looking to help, please visit familytofamily.org for donation. And if you can donate, please share the link listed in the show note with your platform, as all as we are all in this together. A reminder before we start our episode: if you enjoy our podcast, you most likely will enjoy our online publication, The Life Business Insider, and all the resources that it comes with. On our publication, you will find show notes, article written by some of the top industry leaders, and the most creative minds. 
And if you are interested in becoming a writer, please visit the article, How to Write for Us, listed in the show description as well. Alas, I want to thank all the patrons of our Patreon page. It is your support that allow me to continue to seek out one of the most prominent guests to join our show and resources to improve the content. For anyone who may be interested in becoming our patrons and receive special benefits such as exclusive interviews, bonus episodes, mock interview workshops, and most importantly, networking opportunity, please click on the link listed in the description as well. Now, let's start our episode with some positive, inspiring news. Today, our news is being brought to you by CNN The Good Stuff, written by Marna Ashirif. The headline is, A nurse on the COVID-19 frontline reconnects with a New York City firefighter who rescued her from a burning building 37 years ago. When Deirdre Taylor was preparing to leave her Virginia home to fight COVID-19 in New York on the front lines. She made sure to pack a possession that she held dear for over three decades, a front page newspaper article. But this wasn't just any newspaper article. It was an article documenting Tyler's rescue from a burning New York City apartment by a firefighter in 1983 when she was only four years old at that time. The picture on the front page article shows a young Tyler with the man who saved her, Eugene Pagilis. I've always knew I came close to losing my life that day, Tyler told CNN. Without him, I wouldn't be here. I had a second chance at life thanks to him. Today, Tyler, 40 years old, is an emergency room nurse who lives in Alexandra, Virginia with her husband and two kids. Ever since the incident, she wondered what became of the firefighter who saved her, coming up empty when she searched for him online, ready to spend two months helping in the fight against COVID-19 at NYU Hospital in Brooklyn. Tyler saw this as an opportunity to finally find him. During one of her shifts, Tyler told a firefighter her story. He called the current captain of Fire Department New York Letter 20 in Manhattan who knew exactly who Tyler was looking for. Tyler gave Eugene a call right after her ship and was very happy to hear his voice on the other end. I wonder about him on 9-11 and hope I will get the chance to thank him. And I finally did, said Tyler. Now, 75 years old, Eugene Pagelis was on cloud nine when she got the call from Tyler on Friday. The two of us just sat there crying on the phone, the Spring Lake, New Jersey resident told CNN, adding that he had the same article frame on his wall for 25 years now. She turned out to be as remarkable woman as she can actually imagine with magnificent life. While Tyler only remembered bits and pieces of what happened on the December day in 1983, Eugene, who retired 24 years ago, remembers it vividly. Peggy Lee's was in Soho neighborhood of Manhattan checking water pipes when he was approached by a man who said there was a fire down the block. Peggy Lee's followed the man to a building of a loft apartment where he noticed smoke coming out of a sixth floor unit. Upon entering the smoky apartment, Peggy Lee's noticed and rescued a woman 
who then say her child was inside the apartment. She kept screaming, my baby. So I went back in and found a young girl who was unconscious, said Pygalese, who then gave her mouth to mouth until she became conscious. I didn't see her ever again after that, but I always wonder about her, said Pygalese, who received Walter Scott Medal for Valor for his rescue of Tyler. Pygalese and Tyler found out they had a lot in common when they reconnected. Tyler enlisted in the army on her 17th birthday, eventually serving in the National Guard as a helicopter pilot before she left to start a family and study to become a nurse. Before Pygalese became a firefighter, he served as a sergeant in the Marine Corps where he fought in the Vietnam War. On top of that, we're both die-hard Yankee fans, say Tyler. Tyler and Pygalese have spoken twice since reconnecting on Friday and hope to meet once it's safe to do so, preferably at Yankee game. I hope to meet her soon, maybe later this summer, said Pygalese. I'd love to meet her two children and go to a Yankee game together. And here at Light Plus Up, we really want to thank you, Tyler and Pygalese, for your amazing and positive stories. Your friendship is something that we're all looking forward for, and we wish you all the very best. Now, if you have been our long-term listener, you all know that wine is one of my biggest passions in life. And many of you might have already guessed from the title of our episode. But today, I have the fortune to invite the winner of the world's best sommelier 2019, Mark Elman, to join us in an exclusive interview. So before we jump into the interview, I want to give all the guests a little background. Mark Elman, our guest, is a sommelier. If you are aware of the documentary movie series currently playing on Hulu, Sums, then you will know that this is a profession that is always prestige and at the same time full of challenges and require a lot of dedications and effort in order to be the best in the particular field. Mark Elmer comes from a family home where wine was consumed moderately. He did his international bachelorette at St. George School before completing an apprenticeship as a hotel manager and bartender. During this time, he discovered his love for wine. From 2012, he worked as a junior sommelier, and he later on completed his certifications at the Court of Master Sommelier in 2015. And he has won the World Cup, which is known as the World's Very Best Sommelier of 2019, and awarded as Sommelier of the Year of 2020 by Michelin Guide. So let's take a short break and we can jump into interview with the world best sommelier, Mark Elmet. All right, Mark, welcome to Life Plus Up podcast. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for the invitation, Kevin. I hope you are well too. We're doing really well here in New York. Definitely not an uh, easy past couple of weeks, but we are very happy that currently our society is going to the right directions. Now, Mark, we had did a little intro before you jump on about you as number one or the best sommelier right now. So, Mark, why don't you give us your intro or your background to us so our audience can understand you a little bit better. Great. My name is Mark Almut. I'm 29 years old, originally from Cologne in Germany, where I've lived for most of my life throughout different hotels and restaurants in Germany. 
but since about four years, I'm based in Zurich, Switzerland, and work at Borlak, which is a traditional five-star hotel with several restaurants and enclosed wine shops called Borakra, and act as a head sommelier. And that's become particularly fun since last year, where I was able to win the best sommelier of the world competition in Antwerp, Belgium. That's fantastic, Mark. And of course, uh, for other audience, you guys will be able to see a link to our YouTube that will link to the competition that Mark has won. An amazing accomplishment as someone in your age, of course. So, Mark, let us know is that sommelier to a lot of us, we just get too used to that term since recently. That, that term has been there for the longest time. It's a very reputable profession, but for a lot of younger generation, they don't know what that is until the first some movie comes out in the early 2010s, right? And now with three movies installment, and we have a lot more movies about wine. Now we get to know what Somalia do and what they actually bring to the entire wine society. So Mark, why don't you share with us is, why did you become a Somalia? I think it's important to understand that a sommelier um, is often only seen as a wine guy, but actually sommelier does so much more. He's working usually in a restaurant or hotel and takes care of the entire beverages, not only wine, but also coffee, um, tea, sake, beer, spirits, cocktails. And uh, very early on, I decided I was intrigued by the hospitality industry because I was always someone who loved to travel, who loved to interact with other cultures and uh, learning foreign languages. So I thought, okay, hospitality is a great trade for that. Um, let's start a hotel training. And during that time in Cologne, when I did my training, I was 17 to 20. I did everything you do in a hotel from dishwashing to reception, to cleaning rooms, to being a waiter. And I discovered my love for wine. And I thought that's a really great hobby. I want to become a hotel manager and keep wine as a hobby. So then first I started working uh, one year as management trainee and was attempting to learn more about the economic side of our industry and was traveling through different parts of Germany. But then I really understood um, that actually it's vice versa. Economics basically is the small hobby. And what I'm really into is wine and being a host in a restaurant. So then I switched and since I'm 21, I'm working as a sommelier full-time. So now almost eight years. And in eight years, you have actually won the crown of the best sommelier competition. You know, a lot of people tell me that it takes a lot of confidence to go ahead and demonstrate your work on a daily basis. But it's another level of confidence to join in front of the whole world is watching, especially watched by people who are in your profession. So why did you decide to participate in the best sommelier contest? It dates quite a long time back because when I was working as a junior sommelier in the Rheingau, which is a Riesling producing area close to Frankfurt in the center of Germany, I had a great mentor and head sommelier who said, it's really cool that you're doing such a good job, but you need to start looking into getting a certification. So what I did was I enrolled in the program of the Court of Master Sommeliers, which involves several steps. The first two being the introductory and the certified. But I said, before I attempt that exam, I need to have some kind of competition experience or exam experience so I don't uh, dive down and leave end. So what I did, I enrolled for some competitions and um, the first competition I did was a young sommelier competition and I came second in Germany for the first attempt. I was quite happy for myself. And then uh, I re-entered the second time uh, the year later and that year the finals from this competition were in Adelaide, Australia. And I was able to be the German candidate for that and that was really a great honor and also a great experience. It was the first time I left Europe and saw some wineries of the new world, but also the first time I met a lot of very serious competing sommeliers, some of which then also later featured in uh, uncorked uh, documentary series on sommeliers. And uh, I really got a 
feel for it and got uh, excited about it. I didn't do very well in that particular competition, but I was uh, intrigued and wanted to continue. And then it was a bit like Alice in Wonderland. I just kept going down the rabbit holes and started to continue doing more and more competitions, doing more and more exams. I moved up several steps um, from introductory to certified to advanced sommelier of the God of Master sommeliers. Um, I'm currently trying to do the master sommelier exam. But for that, I was kept on going the um, competition route to train myself and to be able to meet more interesting colleagues and producers from around the world. And then in 2017, um, that made me uh, win the Best Sommelier of Germany competition, which then made me the candidate for last year's World Cup. You know, like that's actually amazing because think about that. You say that you have been doing this for eight years, but starting from like the half, you start competing already. And you can only imagine the harder hard work you put in there. When we talk to other sommeliers or when we actually see other people in the competition, everyone has their own style. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how do you work? Why does, what do you do your job, especially in your style? To me, the job of the hospitality industry in general, not only that of a sommelier, is based around the guests. We're there to create a great atmosphere for our guests at the restaurant or at the hotel in general, and to make sure they have a great time and they get at least that what they expect out of the experience, but also probably if we do our job well more. What does that mean? In a restaurant, you have several situations at the same time. You have someone enjoying their wedding night. Uh, you have someone enjoying a business meeting. You have someone on their own who's just traveling and curious to discover more about Switzerland. So we're really catered to a lot of different needs within one dinner service or one lunch service at the Pavillon, which is our two-star Michelin French restaurant. And I think it's very important that you as a host or as a sommelier get a feeling for that. And especially when it then comes to wine, it's important to speak to your guests, to communicate and say, um, what are you here for? What are your experiences with wine? Do you only drink a certain style of wine? And then what's my best offering for you tonight on that? Or are you able to discover something? Would you like a tasting flight? And I think it's very important to have that uh, strong empathy if you work in our industry. And at the same time to understand, uh, I know in America it's very different, but in Germany and Switzerland, very often you're only one or two sommeliers on a team not like half a dozen or a dozen like in the US. So you are very much reliant on a good teamwork with the rest of your team, both the service staff, but also the kitchen, because of course you need to know a lot about food and wine pairing. And I think if you see yourself like that, an empathic host as part of a team, that's probably the best way to go about your daily job. However, that being said, um, in a competition, it's of course very, very different because there you get put through different hoops and different tasks. So it's close to your everyday job, but very different at the same time. You know, like that is true. Like when I was watching your competitions, it does seem that they make the situation a little harder because if I imagine I work in a restaurant that almost every single table has a problem, it can be quite challenging, isn't it? Yes, we always like to speak about challenges, not problems. So I agree with you there. Um, but the most challenging thing about somni competition is um, the element of stress. And I guess anyone who has tried to run a marathon or has uh, been to the Olympic Games or any um, particular exam or competition of any field can relate to it, that it's a very different thing of what you train for for years and you go through all the steps over and over again, the theory you learn when you're learning for a university exam, for example, but then you're actually in that spot in that week with that buzz of people from 63 countries all around you. And then in the finals, they, it's actually even more stressful because we were in a theater with 1,100 spectators on site and 14,000 watching the live stream. And usually in a restaurant, I only work in front of about 40 guests. So that was a very new situation, especially seeing as 
all the judges are all the former best sommeliers of the world and are then aided by um, really high class judges like Jancis Robbins, for example, who's a, probably the most famous wine writer there is in the world. And that's why when you prepare for something like that, it's very important to try to feel like you're in your restaurant. That was what I was trying to do. But at the same time, to be able to deal with the stress, because then in the stress, there's a lot of different things you need to do. For example, you need to um, decant an old bottle of red wine and explain what it is. You need to uh, split up a champagne bottle into 15 glasses with perfect measurements. You need to do a menu recommendation, but then one of the guests might say, hey, I really don't like red wine, although it's a dish that really goes well with red wine. What can you recommend? Uh, you might be able uh, to do a cocktail or to correct a 40 wine list or identify spirits and wines from all over the world. So there's a lot of different things happening in a very fast pace. Most of these tasks are only two to six minutes. And in the week before that, you already had to go through very strong theory selection, tasting selection and service selection also. So it's quite a challenging week and you need to be able to pick a lot of different parts of your knowledge and do that in an elegant and eloquent manner to the uh, guest's uh, satisfaction. You know what, that's a fantastic point, especially when you're talking about that in your line of business, you make it special by being empathy, by being able to put yourself in your customer's shoes. And you also talk about the culture different in US versus anywhere else in the world, especially in European country. I agree is that one of my Somalia friends in New York told me that they have a dozen or half a dozen Somalia in the restaurant and they run it almost like a sales team of trying to sell a beverage. But based on what you're telling me is that the culture over there in Europe is different, that you're trying to coordinate and direct the whole dining experience, which is fantastic, right? It's a mix of both. I mean, obviously, um, the restaurant is dependent on people being there, having a good time, but also um, paying for wine and food. Of course, it is an industry. But I think if you only see it that way, it's very difficult to be a good sommelier. And I think you need to have a good mix between the two. So if you create a beverage program, a wine list, which um, has a fair pricing, then the guest enjoys it. But of course, also then the hotel management enjoys um, what comes out of it. And I think it's very important to have that balance, to have a very fair pricing, but have a very good offer and to make a good experience for everybody. And uh, I think as a sommelier, you're always reliant on everybody around you because you work so closely with the kitchen. Our two-star chef, Laurent Epperon, um, for example, has been at the hotel for 20 years. So he has a very established kitchen style and I had to get to uh, know that very well and so that I can know which wines I can pair with which dish. And I was very lucky because our restaurant manager is uh, actually my predecessor as a sommelier at the hotel. He's himself from Burgundy, so very akin to wine. And he's actually the current best sommelier of Switzerland. So we are a very strong team and we can learn a lot from one another because the beauty about um, the world of wine or general beverages is that there's so much and it's constantly changing. For example, currently people are releasing the uh, 2009 En Primeur tasting notes for Bordeaux. So the most current vintage of Bordeaux. So there's always something new to learn and something new to be inspired by and to take in and then to put that on the dining floor and put that across the different parts we have in the hotel and our wine shops. No, that is actually a very true point. Now, let me ask, being as a winner for the best sommelier competition, it sure has changed your life a bit, right? So why don't you share with us what are some impacts from being the best sommelier in the world now? Um, being the best sommelier of the world is something um, you are for three years because the competition only takes place in three years. And luckily, unlike in sports, you don't need to defend it. Once you did it once, you stay with that title with the vintage forever. 
And it's been a great time already the last just over a year. It's been about 15 months. And it's been a huge honor because um, the main thing that changes is that you suddenly have much more chances to contact people from all over the world and you are contacted by people from all over the world too. And that can be being invited to um, very interesting events to hold a speech or to hold a tasting or give a tasting note, but also to um, maybe help people learn more about wine and service and especially to getting to know sommeliers and producers from all over the world. For example, I've been traveling a lot during the last year and it was the first time I went to China. It was um, the second time I went to South Africa. Um, and this year there were many other trips planned, which now of course have been postponed, not canceled, but postponed. So there's a lot of traveling going on, but also you get to meet a lot of interesting people. And one comparison I always like to do is before that, it was only based on contacts mainly from the German speaking countries. So from Germany, Austria, and Switzerland. But since the world title, it's really become international. So people from all over the world contact me. For example, next week I'm doing a webinar uh, or different webinars for people in uh, Seattle, in Switzerland, in Mexico, in Cyprus, and in uh, Japan. So it's been quite a mix suddenly. And um, the good thing is also you get very interesting experiences. You, of course, get some media coverage too, and that shows the variety because um, there's been media coverage both in established media like the Financial Times, but also in things I would have never thought would be interested for a sommelier, but like the Playboy magazine, which are also interested to present some wine recommendations to the viewers. So there is a lot of different things you get to experience suddenly, and it's a really huge pleasure and huge honor to get to know um, all these inspiring people around the world. Well, it definitely seems that it has been quite a journey since then, and journey just barely started. But now let me ask you, so you have mentioned you become a speaker for a webinar. You start teaching people how to do tastings or even give a lot of uh, speeches about wine. How does it feel or how does the transition from a sommelier dedicated to a group of customers to now you are a speaker? How does that mentality change for you? The interesting thing about being a speaker is that your audience varies a lot. And um, partially, you know that from the restaurant because some guests come to the restaurant and don't know a lot about wine and are um, very happy to get their first experience from you and to get some first ideas from you. Some people know much more than I do um, because they have always been drinking Bordeaux, for example, and they have a very long experience of that particular subject. And I'm very happy to learn from them. But as a speaker, it depends where you are. If it's in a... Um, environment with let's say regular customers that are from outside the wine industry then of course you do it very different to when you do it for professionals on a wine fair where you're explaining a certain region or a certain producer and i think that's the huge challenge but at the same time the thing i love most that you have to prepare yourself for different audiences get a feel for where am i picking them up and where do i want to take them within the hour or two i have with them and the good thing is about wine it's a, a topic that really touches the heart so it's very easy to convey that emotion, especially if you speak about regions where you've been, where you've met the winemakers, where you've stood in the vineyards, and then to get that emotion across, both with what you tell them, but also with the photos you might be able to show, or even a winemaker on site, that's really the fun part. And of course, it seems a little unnatural for someone not even 30 to do that already. But I was very lucky that also in the lead up to the World Cup, and all the years before that, I was always traveling a lot and meeting a lot of people and reading a lot. So um, I'm sure there are many people out there who know much, much, much more about me. But the little bit I have learned already, I'm very happy to share with others in the world so that they can uh, continue their own personal journey in wine and the wine industry too. Yeah, and that's why we have you today to go ahead and join us to go ahead for the entire base of New York to know who you are, right? Now, my question is that as 
currently for you as one of the best sommelier in the world, you have to study constantly. You have to go ahead and run the wine program. You have to do webinars. That takes a lot of motivation to do all these things. So where did you get your motivation from? Basically, wine is something I don't see as a job being a sommelier. It really is my passion and my, um, my big, big topic in life, you could say, being a good sommelier. And the question I ask myself is, what can I do to become a better sommelier in my everyday work? And for that, you quickly notice, okay, you need to find out where you are. So the motivation to enter competitions and exam general was, okay, I want to find out where do I stand in comparison to other sommeliers. And also by putting yourself in a stressful situation, by stepping in front of very seasoned examiners and writing theory tests and doing tastings, you very quickly find out what are your weaknesses, which areas haven't you covered enough yet in your reading, which haven't you tasted enough yet. And that's something I try to continue to do because I think that's the biggest motivation to continue to improve yourself. And you mentioned, yes, it takes a lot of sacrifice, but I think if it, you go for a goal which is really close to your heart, it's easy to give that sacrifice because it doesn't feel like a sacrifice because you're spending time with something you enjoy. And I think that's very important. For example, when people train for a marathon, they will need to do a lot of preparations for that and will need to run very frequently and need to continuously push themselves further, running 10, then 15, then 20, then more kilometers. Um, and I think it's very good to have this long-term goal and to also see it as a continuous evolution process, to not see it as something where you go, okay, I'm going to the World Cup, um, then it's finished, and then I forget about it, because then there's no intrinsic motivation. But I'm just in my late 20s, I will hopefully be working with wine for another half a century. So it's something I didn't see as a short-term benefit. It's something when I was putting in the work and putting in the late night hours and doing my flashcards to learn all the theory of all the regions of all the world is something I really saw as a long-term investment. And it's something that also doesn't stop. And I think that's really the key when you do, when you set yourself a difficult goal, goal is to find out what is your motivation, what is for in it for you for the long-term and are you not only just doing that because someone told you or because you think it will um, give you a certain amount of prestige or something. It really needs to be something you want to do for yourself. You for yourself need to want to become better in the topic you are currently approaching and in my case being a sommelier. You know what, those are very, very true. Especially that I think when you talk about trying to put down the late night hours, the flashcards, remember all the new knowledges with thousands of wine coming up. Now, a lot of people get into or get to know your industry through recent documentary movies, the song that we can all see from Hulu or Netflix in our countries. So have you seen those documentaries? Uh, yes, of course. The SOM documentaries are very popular also in the European sommelier industry. Actually, um, Dustin Wilson, one of the key characters, was um, part of a sommelier competition here in Zurich about two years ago. And during that time, I had a chance to meet him. And it was for me like meeting a celebrity from our wine world. So that was very exciting. And um, not only the SOM films, but also the Uncorked documentary got some coverage here. It's a slightly shorter series. Um, with some episodes and some of the people there I met uh, through the traveling too and it's fascinating to see how the passion for our job was boosted by that. I think it's a bit like the chefs on TV which have um, become very famous in very many countries. Um, our sommeliers are by far not there yet and especially we see that some documentaries are very very well known within America. However outside of America especially in Europe many people still don't really know what a sommelier is, perhaps with the exception of France, because it comes from there. And it's there in general, the restaurants, the chefs and the sommeliers are, have a very high esteem. 
um, and are very um, well seen throughout the society that is still slightly different in some other European countries. Gastronomy is not always seen as something that is as important as some other industries, although I'm sure everybody likes to have a great night out at a restaurant. It's still not really in the culture that much that it's something we need to promote and need to take care of also in a crisis situation. Um, and that's why I think it's good that at least in America, the some documentaries have helped promote the profession. But I think um, they've started a process which we now need to continue in Europe to promote the profession even more. Also to make sure that we continue getting motivated people, um, young people within the service industry that are um, willing to put in that extra effort and become a sommelier. You know what, since uh, you actually mentioned about the young people, that's actually very important because we know that for the longest time, we always feel that wine is for my dads or my uncles or in that generation. But you see in New York or even in US or different parts that it become more and more of younger generation trying to dip themselves into the wine world, trying to explore and gain knowledge and even have mini wine clubs or societies that's only for millennials or for younger generation. So how do you feel about the trend of wine exposure to younger generation? I think the wine industry has um, immense challenge ahead of it because for a long time, as you just explained yourself, wine was put on a pedestal and many people had the feeling they would need to read half a library before they're able to order a bottle of wine in a restaurant. And I think that's not the good approach. And now we see much more uh, casual approaches to wine through Instagram, through wine bloggers, um, through slightly different shopping environments in retail, but also through um, different wine services and wine bars popping up in all major cities of the world. And I think that's a great process which needs to be encouraged and continued because we need to make sure that people don't see wine as something complicated because it's not, it's quite easy. You know whether you like a wine or not. It's very, very simple. Um, you know what you like. Um, it's like when you eat a burger, you know whether you like the burger or not. Um, and I think you should go about wine the same way if it's new to you and you should not let yourself be scared off by it needs to have so many points or needs to have that grape or that origin you should really go by your gut feeling by what you enjoy to drink by maybe if you had a great souvenir blanc at a friend's party maybe try a different souvenir blanc from a different region um, and i think that's um, the best way to do it and i see us in the industry as gatekeepers to that that can lead you a little bit along that process um, and we can maybe put some new ideas in your mind and say, hey, tell me what you enjoyed. Maybe if you like that, you, then next time try this or try this producer or this region. And that way people can go on their own wine journey in a slightly more fun way. And especially now, I think it's become much more inclusive because first of all, people share anything they do on Instagram and other social media. But of course, also through new wine apps like Vivino. I don't know if you have that a lot in the US. It's an app where you scan a bottle of wine and immediately tells you how other people enjoyed this. It's a bit like TripAdvisor um, or Yelp for the wine industry. And I think that's really interesting to see that we are stepping a little bit away from the famous critics of our industry and are coming to a community um, sense because wine is something you share. Most bottles of wine hopefully get opened with other people around you because you invited them for dinner or you're having a nice dinner with your family or you're at a restaurant meeting someone. And I think that's pleasure of wine and that's also how it should be communicated that it is something that is nested into this community feeling and being part of a society and we see that especially in many of the very very classic wine regions um, in France, Italy and Spain as the big three from Europe. Wine is always on a 
uh, table. If you visit a winery, there will always be some olives, some cheese, some ham in front of you because it's so linked to coming around and sharing an experience of not only wine, but also food and the sense of being together. And I think if we approach it that way, we will be able to get young people involved in it because having this experience and being able to connect also to people around the world much faster, having a Zoom chat with a winemaker, for example, as we've seen it in the last weeks, is something that will make it much more fun and approachable also for young people that haven't had that much wine experience yet. And we also see many wine regions, even Bordeaux, becoming more like you probably know it already from Napa in California, with open cellar doors where you can just come in and taste and sometimes visit a small museum or have a tour of the winery, have a tour of the vineyard. And I think if we approach wine with this experience and community sense, it will be a great future. You know what? I think that you shared a lot of great points there, Mark, especially about how a lot of the older winery like Bordeaux are starting to opening themselves up to follow the trend of inviting them to meet with the winemakers and things like that. Now let's talk about Switzerland. Because you know that you share a lot of great things about, you know, the old world, the France, the Italy, the Bordeaux, Burgundies, those wines we all know. But the thing is, there's a best kept secret is that the wines of Switzerland has always been famous within the country. Why don't you share with us a little bit about that? Switzerland, as many probably know, is really marked by the Alps, which are going through the center of the country. And that helps that although it's quite a small country, all of Switzerland only has about eight and a half million inhabitants. Um, has very varied countrysides and climates. So we have the slightly um, well-known steep slopes of Western Switzerland, which is the French-speaking part from Valais and Beau. Then we have the so-called German-speaking part where I'm based. And then we have the very, very sunny Italian part, Ticino, which borders Italy and is the only part of Switzerland south of the Alps. So it's really hot in summer. And that means we have a multitude of styles, especially also because Switzerland has many international grapes like Syrah, Pinot Noir, Shiraz, Chardonnay, Merlot especially, but we also have very many grapes that are so-called indigenous. That means they only exist in a certain place in the world and especially in Valais, so our largest wine producing region in the very west next to Lake Geneva. It's um, a region which is full of these old indigenous grapes and they're difficult to pronounce for people that don't speak French or German, uh, like Haida is probably something not everybody can say. Um, but I think it's fun to taste these. And yes, you're right, because they are so fun to taste and due to the mountains taking a lot of space, the vineyards are usually quite small, are usually run by small family businesses and they tend to spread them only locally in the local gastronomy or within the country because the Swiss are very proud of their wine and also they drink quite a lot of wine. They drink much more wine per capita than our neighbors from Austria or Germany, for example. And hence the majority of our production gets drunk here in Switzerland and only about 1% gets exported. Um, and even when I was working in Germany, which is right next door, you hardly see any Swiss wine because it all gets drunk here. Yep, so like for all the audience out there, if you see a Switzerland wine, you have to snatch it as soon as you can. That's the 1% that will be leaving the country, right? But that also posed some kind of a obstacle for you, especially that if you work in a hotel, you are exposing yourself to international guests and customers. How do you persuade someone who have never tried Swiss wine before to take a shot at your recommendation? I think the great thing about people traveling nowadays is that they are open and curious. Um, of course, you have business travelers, but especially um, leisure travelers are very open to discover the country they chose for their holidays. But even a business traveler who is traveling every day doesn't want to eat and drink the same thing every day. And Switzerland is really something which is unusual because we have such a blend of kitchens 
Um, of course, many people know us for the big two C's, cheese and chocolate. Um, but we also have really interesting dishes. For example, in Zurich, there's a great dish, which is um, a braised veal, um, which is in a cream sauce with some white wine and then comes with a hash brown, which we call Rösti. And then if someone is already having that Swiss food, it's quite easy to convince them, hey, do you want to try some Swiss wine? Because that's a concept I think many people know to have a wine from a region with something you eat from that region. That's something that works with many products around the world. And that's the first thing we try to do. Um, that's also why we always have many Swiss wines by the glass and offer throughout all of our restaurants, especially now on the summer terrace. People are enjoying a lot of crisp Swiss white wines. But what we also do is in our two-star restaurant, Pavillon, we have a tasting menu called Harmony. And with that nine-course menu, we create Harmony with wine flights, one of them being an entirely international wine flight, but the other one being an entirely Swiss wine flight. Um, and that many people are surprised, like, you have enough Swiss wine to pay a whole menu? Yes, we do. Um, it's very small allocations. There are many wines where I can only buy one or two cases of a year. Um, but that keeps me on my toes and keeps me always looking for new discoveries. And then I can share that memories of um, meeting the winemakers, being at their winery, seeing the very steep vineyards, um, which are all hand harvested or jointly hand harvested, and sharing that experience with the guests. And especially if the guests have a bit more time, um, it's very easy to convince them to go inside the mountains or inside the wineries because it's something that is really very cynic in Switzerland. And then they take a bottle of wine there and that's like the perfect experience you can have of seeing the Alps, eating some cheese and drinking some wine. You know, seeing the Alps, eat some cheese and drink some wine, that sounds like a perfect vacation that I would like to take once the COVID is all finished. Now, my question for you, Mark, is that you have mentioned before that you are scheduled for webinars, you have do a lot of speeches. So what is your next upcoming project that the audience can get to know you more about? Um, of course, the main project is the hotel. And um, as for many industries, the current situation is quite challenging for the hospitality industry. So we at the hotel are currently in a very creative process and trying to set up new things. Actually, just two hours ago, we pulled up cinema screen in our garden because the garden was usually used for weddings and events, which have been now canceled. So we said, OK, let's do an open air cinema. So this Thursday, we'll be starting the open air cinema at the Borlach, um, which I think is something if you have told me six months ago, I'll be writing a wine list for a cinema bar. I would probably have laughed, but now it's something I say, OK, interesting challenge. Um, apart from that, the uh, World um, Association of Sommeliers, the International Sommelier Association, is very busy this year preparing both the General Assembly, which will be held, but also preparing the Best Sommelier of Europe and Africa competition, which will be held in November on Cyprus. Um, and therefore, we are currently hosting many webinars to help candidates from around the world prepare, trying to get them close to our sponsors so they can taste some wine and learn more about wine while preparing, because it's so important to um, form these bonds throughout the world. And actually recently, part of that was that I took part in a big tradition of um, sommeliers or the best sommeliers of the world. They always make their own corkscrew with Chateau Laguiole, which is probably the most well-known producer for corkscrews. So I've just recently launched my own Chateau Laguiole Mark Almond corkscrew. So there are very many different things going on, um, but they are all very fun to do and to um, continue developing these projects always as part of a team. And that's fantastic, especially that you will have your own stamp on a corkscrew of your very own now. My quick question is that you have been preparing seminars to help people to get ready for the best sommelier contest. But how about you? Like, uh, are you currently in the process of getting the next level certification too? I think 
it's something as a somni that never stops because I always say when you get your first somni certificate, it's a bit like getting a driver's license. You can handle a car, but you're not a good driver. So you need to continue learning. And I think if any somni ever thinks he's finished, um, that's then he's wrong because there's always new things to learn. And that's why I'm continuing to learn and I hope to continue doing so for a long time. Um, competitions I will no longer do because like I said, when you won the World Cup, you're not allowed to go again for that. And any other competition now wouldn't really make sense. Um, so I'm very happy to help others on their route for that. But I am uh, still trying to do the Master Sommelier exam, which is a very challenging exam. Usually about 97% that attempted fail. Um, I have failed twice already, both in tasting and in theory. I've passed the service portion, but you need to be able to pass all three portions to get the MS title. And that's something I'm still working towards. And I hope I manage to do someday. If not, then at least on the route to that, I would have learned a lot. And even if I then have finished with that process, there are always new things to look into. For example, you can become a specialist for port wine. You can become a specialist for sake. You can become a specialist for burgundy wines or sherry. There's always new things to learn. Um, and just also not, even if you're not learning for certification, I think if you have that in you, this constant development process, this constant improvement process, it's something even if there's no exam date then set, you will probably um, still always continue doing that, informing yourself, learning, tasting, and trying to become better at your profession. Well, that is very true, especially after watching the movie Song, that we can only imagine the intense pressure from just the Master of Somalia certifications. And we hope to see you in one of the European versions of that movie soon, right? Now, my question to you is, is that before we end our interview, there are a lot of a younger generation aspire to become you now because of not just the movie, but the culture is changing. There is a new industry that is booming up everywhere in the States or even around the country or around the world of Somalia. So what is one advice you have for people who are interested in becoming one? I think that two things which are crucial when you become a sommelier. The first thing is to understand a sommelier traditionally comes from a restaurant. So you need to work in a restaurant and you need to understand this restaurant fully. That means you need to be able to be a captain of a certain part of that restaurant. You need to be uh, able to understand how the kitchen is preparing the food or even better have some uh, experience of preparing food yourself. You need to understand how the service is set up, how um, important it is to get your table reservations right. And then of course, how does the Somni work? How is the Somni team built up? How are they organizing the seller? How do they um, work with wine merchants who are selling them wine? How often do they visit wineries and understand that part? And at the same time, try to get yourself a good education on wine. And the two biggest institutes doing that are either the Court of Master Somnies, who do very many um, things through courses, through exams, through helping in competitions, but also the WSET, which is the Wine Spirits Education Trust, which also offer examinations on several levels and do a bit more of a scholar approach. And that way you have a structure in learning what wines you should know, what regions you should know, but of course also remembering that you need to put in your own efforts and that can be through the wealth of information you can find on the internet, especially on some um, specified sites like Guildsom, which is quite big in America, um, but also by reading current magazines like Wine Spectator or Decanter and also by really classically learning some wine books um, and also always when you drink a bottle of wine or taste a bottle of wine to remember what have you tasted look at the bottle where is it from read up a little bit on that and one of the best tips I ever got was when I was starting as a sommelier every night when you go home 
look up on those wines you sold that night or you saw your colleague handling and then maybe look up what can you read about that vintage, that producer, that grape, that region. And that way you strong, you slowly start building your knowledge a bit like a snowball, which is rolling down the hill. You know what? That is a fantastic advice. And for everyone out there, just let you guys know, it's not easy profession, but it's definitely someone that you can go and look up to. So Mark, we're here at Life Plus Up. Really thank you for your time and give us a glimpse into your world and also inspire a lot of people out there who want to be in this industry that we are so afraid to get into. Now for the one last thing we always ask our guests for a small favor is what is one word advice you have for all our listeners? Just one word. Uh, humility. Humility. You know what? That is a fantastic ending to it. And everyone out that's listening, this is Mark, the best sommelier of the world at this time. So thank you very much for joining us. And we really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. I hope everyone enjoying the conversation I had with Mark. It sure was a pleasure. For anyone who's interested in seeing the tournament, I have attached the YouTube link in the show note as well too. So for everyone out there, have a great day. And I will see you all on next Wednesday at Life Plus a podcast. As we're wrapping up this episode, I want to thank and remind all the listeners that in the description, you'll be able to find the overview of our contents, the links to positive news and resources, and most importantly, the show notes that I publish on Medium. Our music are being brought by Scott Holmes from scottholmesmusic.com. And if you have a question for my guests or for myself, please email me at podcastlifeplusup at gmail.com or find me on Instagram or simply by clicking on the voice link in the description. If you find this podcast informative and helpful, please follow and subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and share with someone that you really think this can help. If you want to support, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or simply by clicking on the donation button. Now, we'll see you all next Wednesday. Until then, remember, success without fun never lasts. And fun without success is not really too much fun. So let's have a fun and a successful podcast together.